Hey everyone, it's Krista Bontrager and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go! Well, this is it. We're in the final stretch. We're picking up our reading this week in the book of Second Peter, and we'll be going all the way to the end of the book of Revelation in this podcast. This will be the final podcast of the year. I wanted to spend a few minutes before we get into the book of Revelation talking about the book of First John, which I have come to believe is one of the most important books in the entire Bible in terms of its apologetic value. It, this is just such an important book for defending the faith against false teaching that people might try to introduce in the church. And one of my favorite passages is right off the bat there in First John chapter 1. And I don't know if you've picked up on this by now, but one of the passions of my heart is to instruct Christians about the historical nature of our faith. I've revisited that theme throughout this podcast series on Route 66, and I think these words from the epistle of 1 John just crystallize so many of those ideas nicely. The apostle says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice the empirical nature of our faith. It is that which has been seen, touched, and heard. Normally, when we think of empiricism, we think of the scientific method. We think of those five sense experiences, and that's how we get knowledge. And that is true in our faith as well. How do we get knowledge? Our faith is built on the firsthand experiences of the apostles. It's built on the empirical evidence that the apostles preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. That which they saw, that which they heard, and that which they touched. So when skeptics say that Christianity is not based on empirical evidence, I tell them, oh no, we are making many empirical claims. We are claiming that our faith is based on real historical events that were seen, heard, and touched. It's not that I've seen Christ. It's not that I've heard his words directly. It's not that I've touched his side or touched his hands, but that my faith rests on the belief that the Bible accurately preserves those five sense experiences of the apostles. Such a powerful word. Another important thing that comes out of the book of First John is that we need to be on our guard against false teaching about Jesus. After 20 years of working in Christian apologetics, I can tell you that most errors that are introduced into people's faith begin with 
a false belief about who Jesus is, what he did, and what he said. And so we have to be super clear on who Jesus was. And and one of my favorite statements comes from chapter 4. He says in verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. In other words, here's how you test it. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. When people make claims about who Jesus is, if they start denying that he's not God, or that God did not come in the flesh, or that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, these are the most foundational claims that the spirit of the Antichrist will make to try to throw people into confusion. And we must stand firm against these claims. And it's no wonder that the two other great monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism and Islam, those religions that also believe that there is only one God, both of them fail this test that First John is talking about. Both of them deny that Jesus was God. Both of them deny that God came in the flesh. And so both of those religions, both Judaism and Islam, fail the test of First John. And now finally, we have reached the book of Revelation. And this is my daughter Emily's, one of her favorite books. We studied this book together when she was in fifth or sixth grade. First, she wanted to study the book of Daniel, and then she wanted to study the book of Revelation. So we spent a year on each one. Now, there's some basic things that we need to understand about the book of Revelation. And I think the most foundational of those principles is that the book of Revelation is a form of what's called apocalyptic literature. This was a form of literature that was going around in the first century, and there's Jewish apocalyptic literature, and this is a form of Christian apocalyptic literature. It's just that this piece of literature is included in our Bibles because we recognize it as being supernaturally inspired, and so therefore it was preserved by the early church. Now, when we think about apocalyptic literature, it often is consumed with themes about judgment and salvation and, and the end times. The Apostle John uses a lot of those images from the Old Testament are kind of recycled in his vision. And so we might begin to recognize like, oh, I think I've heard this before. This sounds sort of familiar. John is revisiting a lot of those themes that we've already covered in some of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, but now recasting them here for the first century church. One of the features of apocalyptic literature is that it comes in the form of a vision or a dream, and sometimes its language can be fairly cryptic and, and highly symbolic. You have crazy creatures with multiple heads and different body shapes and types. It almost seems like you've entered into a, a fantasy world or a piece of science fiction when you go into apocalyptic literature. And so we want to proceed with caution because we want to remember that these symbols and the meaning behind these things probably would have been more understandable to the original audience in which it was written, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. 
Whereas we are separated by 2,000 years of history now. And so we really want to take care when we approach the interpretation of the book of Revelation to make sure that we're not reading into it our own times and our own issues and our own concerns, but rather we're trying to look at it through the eyes of the original readers. Who was it written to and how would they have understood these visions now along these lines let's say a word here about the historical context of the book of revelation now many scholars are of the opinion that the book of revelation is written quite late maybe like 80 to 90 a.d so that would have been after the fall of the temple now more recent scholars have suggested that the book of revelation might fit better more in the the reign of nero and i'll get to that in a moment as to why that is but nero died in 68 a.d so that would have been before the fall of the temple in jerusalem in 70 a.d now one of the major reasons for this suggestion is that it's obvious that the church in the book of Revelation is going through some fairly intense persecution. And we see this hint already in John's epistles there in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that this is a, a church that is going through some persecution. John himself has been exiled to the island of Patmos. And those situations fit nicely with the reign of Nero. He was going after the Christians full steam ahead and putting them to death. And one of the purposes of the book of Revelation is to bolster the hopes of its readers to know that God is still in control that even though it feels like the world is out of control and people are dying left and right in their churches in their families that families are being separated they're being killed off the world feels like it is running amok but John wants his churches to know that God is still in control God is still on the throne human history is happening but it's not slipping by God's notice and that one day judgment will come and all things will be put right that's kind of the main macro big picture message of the book of Revelation but I would suggest that the book of Revelation is in some sense a microcosm of the entire Bible it's really a revisiting of all of the themes that we've been talking about this year through our Route 66 campaign. That in the book of Revelation, we see the hand of God at work to preserve the seed of the woman and to preserve the Messiah and that God will fulfill his promises, but that one day judgment will come. Let's look for a moment at Revelation chapter 12. It's right in the middle of the book and I think it's such a fascinating chapter because really it's the story of the entire Bible in a nutshell. It says starting in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now at first, we don't know who this pregnant woman is that the author is talking about here. In, this is in the middle of a vision. So let's keep reading and see if the text will tell us. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. 
well, now this red dragon, that sounds really ominous. It's very unusual looking, multiple heads and swinging its tail. So it's kind of a, a mythical creature, a supernatural creature that it could knock out one third of the stars. Verse five, and she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Ah, that should take us back to our discussion from Genesis 39. That's an allusion to the promise to Judah that we read about so long ago. And we talked in our podcast about way back in the book of Genesis. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then a war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who led the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and the angels with him. Oh, now we know who this red dragon is. He is the serpent from the Garden of Eden way back in Genesis chapter 3. Then we've been revisiting that all year. And here he is in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. This is the story of our salvation in a nutshell, in a vision, in an apocalyptic vision given to the Apostle John. Going down to verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Who do you think this male child is going to be? The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away in the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Oh, it's so powerful. Now, we don't want to get caught up in all these little details of, well, what does it mean that the earth swallowed the woman by opening its mouth and, and swallowing the river and the dragon spewed out of its mouth? Don't get caught up in all those details. Look at the big, beautiful picture of redemption. Satan's been at war against God's people since Genesis 3. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, throughout scripture, we've read all of these wonderful stories of how Satan is at war against God's people and God's people are remaining faithful to God and that there's a faithful remnant. Even when things were bad, even in Israel, when they went into captivity, God still stayed with that faithful remnant, Daniel and Esther and and even when Jesus was born, Herod was right there ready to kill the Messiah. And yet God preserved Jesus. He preserved Mary and Joseph. He saved them. And so it's the same story for us today. Satan is still at war against those who would obey God's commands. So when you feel like things aren't going well for you and the world is persecuting you and you are taking a stand for your faith. And I'm not talking about, you know, I just had a bad day or, or my coworkers a little upset with me. I'm talking about full on frontal assault against you. 
what do you stand for? I know for me, one of the things I stand for is my marriage. And Satan is about the business of attacking my marriage. But I can always know that God is on the side of trying to preserve my marriage. What side am I going to continue to stand on? Satan is at war against me. In the broader culture, we know that efforts are ramping up in our own country against Christians. But think of those Christians who are already living in countries where they truly are experiencing a war, that Satan is going against them. They can't get jobs. It's hard for them to secure a place to live. It's hard for them to take care of their families. Sometimes their children, Christian children are kidnapped and sold into slavery. Yes, the enemy is still at war against God's people. Let's stand together, Grace family. Let's stand against the attacks of the enemy because we've read the end of the book, right? We're going to read that this week and we know how the story goes. We know God wins and it's not that it won't come at a price. For some of us, that price will be our lives, but we know that God will ultimately win. He will set things aright. He will judge the wicked and he will reward the righteous. I remember when I was studying the book of Revelation with my daughter, Emily, she was maybe 10 or 11 at the time. And that when we got to the end, I asked her, Emily, what do you think the book of Revelation is about? And she said, well, it's a really scary book if you don't belong to Jesus because the wrath of God is coming. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty profound. You're right. There's a lot in this book about the wrath of God. And then she went on to say, but it's a book of comfort to the Christian. If you believe in Jesus, God will take care of you. How profound from the mouth of a child. She got it. That's the main message of the book of Revelation. It's a book of comfort for the Christian, but it's a book of warning about the wrath of God for the unbeliever. Wow, Grace family, we've reached the finish line. It's been the honor of my life to go on this journey with you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope that you'll continue to share this with your friends because the journey through scripture never ends. And we want to encourage others to go on that journey for themselves. The Bible is the word of God and it is a powerful sword that can separate soul from spirit. It can reveal our sin and bring us great comfort. Share it with a friend. And this is a wonderful resource. We're going to leave this posted up so that others can avail themselves to it. So be sure to share the link, share the love of that you have grown in to have for scripture this year. Share that with others. Thank you for joining me, Grace family. And I hope that you'll have a blessed new year with your friends and family and keep going in the word. We're in it together. Thanks and God bless. Bye-bye.